We, before we get going, we're going to dismiss children for Children's Church. You can follow Pastor Neil and Paula Schwartz out the north door. So kids, may you know that God is good and that he loves you and that he has come for you. Send a son. Well, if somebody told me, you know, this week I met your daughter Emma and she is delightful. I would say, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, she's such a firecracker of a personality, her in her little petite body and red hair. And if you just saw Emma standing here, you know that she's not petite. She's tall, but she doesn't have red hair. Oh, and also, what a gifted musician playing the saxophone. I mean, she's just awesome. Emma can sing, Emma plays ukulele, but she doesn't play saxophone. And linguistically, man, she speaks German and Arabic. Well, I'm thinking we have a case of mistaken identity. Emma has a few Spanish phrases, donde esta el baño, right? Uh, or, you know, she can sing, she can sing, uh, Silent Night in German, but that's about as far as it goes. And that cute little yellow VW Bug that she drives, Emma drives a 2005 gray Santa Fe. I guess it's cute, but beauty is in the eye of the beholder. My point is, this would lead me to conclude that this person has not really met my daughter or know who she is. She has the wrong person. She has the wrong information. She has the wrong view. I would dare to say they have the wrong teaching or doctrine on who Emma Brand is. Sadly, we can do this with the living God. In our worship of him, we can have the wrong information, the wrong view, the wrong doctrine, and uh, end up worshiping the wrong God, if you will. We end up making God how we want him to be, rather than how he has revealed himself to be. But here's the truth. Our God is looking for worshipers. Who will worship him in spirit and in truth? And sometimes they're discovered in the most unlikely places. And that's what we're going to see today as we explore John 4 today. So let me pray for us and then we'll go ahead and get into today's message. Hmm. Lord Jesus, it still amazes me that God put on flesh and dwelt among us. It still amazes me that you came and lived the life that we couldn't and you expensively spent yourself for us on the cross and you rose from the dead. But you were here. You dwelt among us to show us what the Father was like, to represent him. And so today, as we look into your word, would you send your Holy Spirit to illumine our eyes of our hearts, our thoughts. Let us today indeed worship you as you have revealed yourself. And Lord Jesus, our great Savior, the one who has shown us what the Father's like, help us to see you for all you are today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're on part three of our series through worship. And if you were with us last week, we talked about worshiping God with song with music because music can open up our hearts 
in ways that maybe the spoken word does not and help us connect with God. But we also remember that music is not necessarily worship in itself unless it conveys the truth of who God is. There's a story about a woman, a Christian woman, who was serving in South Africa, and she met some Zulu women who were working, and they were singing the most haunting, beautiful song. And, and she thought, this must be something that is talking about the deepest depths of their existence. And so she asked someone she knew, can you tell me what these women are singing? I said, oh, certainly. If the water boils, you won't get dysentery. A truth, but not necessarily a soul-changing truth. Indeed, God wants to be worshipped in truth. And if we're not careful, we can get ourselves in the weeds, in a place where we're trying to worship him for who we want him to be. So number one, true worship leads to a God as he has revealed himself. True worship leads to a God as he has revealed himself. Again, we're in John 4. This is the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. And so Jesus and his disciples, they go into the Samaritan district. And if you know anything historically about the relationships between Samaritans and Jews, there is tension there. There's a tension because centuries before the Samaritans were a remnant of poor Jews that stayed in the land and they intermarried with Gentiles and they kind of adopted some of those Gentile ways. And their scriptures were different. They edited that and we'll talk about that. But, you know, a good Jewish person would oftentimes, they would not go into that region because they didn't want to have a conflict and they didn't want to, in, in their minds, defile themselves. But now Jesus, the Jew, is going with his disciples and he is going to the other side of the tracks, if you will. A neighborhood that hmm, good Jews don't hang out in. Think about this even farther. Jesus, who is God incarnate, who's put on flesh, he has crossed the tracks into sinful humanity to reach out because he is looking for worshipers. And so here we are, there by a well that was dug by Jacob centuries before, and he sends his disciples into town. And this Samaritan woman comes in the heat of the day which probably means she is an outcast. She hasn't come when the rest of the crowd came. She wants to be there alone. And Jesus, strangely enough, asks her for a drink of water. Well, there's some banter back and forth about, you know, okay, you're a Jew, and you're asking me a Samaritan, and you, know, you guys don't have any dealings with us. I'm a, I'm a woman, you're a man. And Jesus says, look, if you knew who was asking you, you would actually turn around and ask him. And he would give you water of living life that would bubble up inside you. And so she goes, okay, you don't even have a jar. So, so give me this. Because all she can think about is physical water. That's all she can imagine. She can't imagine that 
the Messiah is here right in front of her and wants to give thir- she want, he wants to parch her thirsty soul. But things start changing once Jesus says, Hey, I'll tell you what, call your husband out here. And she is very coy, you know, trying to keep things, Jesus at distance. And, oh, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You're right. You've had five husbands. And the one you have now, he's not your husband. And all of a sudden, it puts her back on her heels. Because somehow this man knows something about her that, you know, how does he know? And so... She kind of defends herself, kind of puts in the clutch and says, uh, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. She's changing the subject. I can see that you're a prophet, and our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Again, this is a controversy that is centuries old when the Jews who were in exile in Babylon came back to rebuild the temple in uh, 538 B.C. The Samaritans who had remained there said, hey, hey, we'll, we'll pitch in. But there was a, a suspicion about their motives, who was going to control that. And the Jews said, no, we, we got this. We're fine. And the Samaritans, in response, built their own temple on a mount called Mount Gerizim. It's there today. And second of all, they took the scriptures, the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch, or the Torah, and they edited it down to fit their national narrative and their national identity about where they were at. And all of this, they excluded the other God-breathed manuscripts of the Psalms, of the wisdom books, of the historical books, and the prophets, excluding all that God did, all that God promised. And again, this is God-breathed word, God's breathed word. It kind of reminds me of our third president, Thomas Jefferson. If you don't know, he was a deist. That means he believed that God created, but he wound it up and let it go. And so what he did with his Bible because he was a man of reason, he cut out all or edited out all the miracles in the Bible. You see, he didn't want to serve a God he couldn't explain away by natural phenomena. And even the people of God, when God rescues them out of Egypt and takes them to Mount Sinai, and has even revealed to them the first Ten Commandments, Moses goes back up to receive the rest of the law. And it's terrifying because the mountain is flashing and thundering. There's a, there's a, a loud trumpet. But in their mind, Moses is taking too long. Hey, saying, hey, we don't know what happened to this guy Moses. So Aaron, tell you what, make us gods that will go before us. And so they give him all these gold earrings and he makes, he makes a golden calf. Why? Because they don't want to serve a holy, mysterious God who they can't control. It's easier to control this God they can see, a calf. And so that's one of the dangers we have in our modern era. We have custom everything, right? We want to have everything tailored to us, including our God. And that is a danger. 
that's idolatry. We expect the God of the universe, the designer of all creation, the standard for all that's good and right to conform to us, who we are. See, we're attracted to a God of love. We're attracted to a God who made us in His image. We're attracted to a God who cares for us, but we don't like Him so much that He punishes sin and our misbehavior. And He is the source of all justice. And He will bring that justice. He puts limits on our behavior. And in today's modern society where everything goes, He puts limits on our sexual behavior, saying, no, that is only meant for the, the covenant of, between one man and one woman in marriage. We love the thought that He'll answer prayer, but we're upset when He doesn't answer it the way we want Him to or in our timing. He asks us to trust Him. He asks us to do things His way and even wait upon Him for His perfect timing rather than to take matters into our own hands. And sometimes we even fall into the idolatry of our shaping Him in our own national, our own national identity. Sometimes I think we think, surely God is on our side, the U.S. We always do God's will. If you're a mature person, you know that's not true. Maybe we associate him with our, our own political party. Well, certainly God votes Republican. God's not a Republican or Democrat. He's neither. We're focused on our self-interest, our comfort. Surely God would not allow such a terrible thing to come into my life or to give me such a painful trial or horrible disease. Or call me out of this relationship that I've been in for years. Even though it's become an idol in your life. Doesn't he want me to have my dreams? I mean, isn't that what dreams are for? I'm going to follow my heart. Our worship is often self-centered. Demanding he, we cater to him. Uh, we, he catered us, excuse me. Rather than responding to himself and all that he is, with all that we are, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why we're Bereans, folks. That's why we value God's word. We try and anchor everything we do in worship in God's truth of his word. You may hear some illustrations from time to time. You might even hear a quote from a Christian author or pastor, but we do not make that our source material for proclaiming what is true about the living God. We are always looking to His Word as a standard and authority how we respond to Him in worship. That's why we spend a major time of this service focusing in on what God's Word says to us. Preaching is part of the worship. Just because we stop singing does not mean worship is not taking place right now. We're responding to who He is. And let me ask you this question. Do you tune out? Or do you say, what does God want to show me right now? Or remind me of right now about who He is? Or who I am? Don't check out. Because this is part of worship. And it even means we exclude or change some songs that we sing here. I don't know if you remember the song Lion of Judah. There's a lyric we've changed 
because we don't believe it lines up with what Scripture says. It talks about he descended to hell. And after some further study in God's Word, and and that that line comes from an older version of, of the Apostles' Creed, you know, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we changed that, we changed that lyric to who descended to die. Because we want to worship God in spirit and in truth. Maybe you think that's not a big deal, but it is a big deal. Because we want to worship God how he's, he's explained himself. Or just some of the superlatives we say. There's, there's a, a song out there. We don't, I don't, I can't even think of it the last time we sang it. But it's called Above All. And the lyric goes, Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. You know what? I think Jesus was mindful of his love for us. But Jesus is not an idolater. His first love, his first desire on the cross was to do the will of the Father. Not just having sentimental love for us. He values us. He does. But God the Father, God the Spirit, is far above his desire for us. That's why we don't sing certain songs. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a hymn under the bus, okay, just to give equal treatment. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and my burden, the burden of my soul rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. Really? You're happy all the day? Is that true? You can be joyful all the day. You bet. Because I've chosen that. But happy? I think that's a false statement. And then you're out in your workplace and you're not happy. Have I embraced a truth that's not a reality? We want to worship God in spirit and in truth of how he has revealed himself. So back to John Four, Jesus continues to pursue this potential worshiper. And he informs her of the deficit in her worship. In verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. So the Samaritans have cut them off from part of God's revelation by just saying, we're just going to keep the first five books of the Bible. They don't have the promise that God is going to raise up a son of David to reign on his throne forever. They don't have the the words about the suffering servant that will take upon himself our infirmities, as in Isaiah 53. They don't have in their words, in their, in their Bibles, that God is going to make all things new. 
They've cut themselves off from what God wants to reveal to them. And sadly, I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, some of you do the same thing. Because there are certain parts of the Bible you don't want to go into. There are certain neighborhoods you feel like you're crossing the tracks. Most of them are in the Old Testament. And I'm not saying it's, it's not challenging. I'm not saying it, it you know, uh, there are some things that take some explanation, and take some study, but we're going to miss some significant things about God if we just keep ourselves in the New Testament or just merely the Psalms. There are things that God wants to reveal about himself, about his character that are deep. And sometimes they're in the most inconvenient places. I'll tell you, I read through the Bible every year, and when I come to Job, I have a love-hate relationship with that book. Because I love it. I think it's so beautiful. But I, I'm, I'm saying, God, I don't, I don't want to go through that. But I'll tell you, every time I go through it, it deepens me a little bit more about who our God is. And even the genealogies reveal something. They reveal something about God's faithfulness. Do not neglect the whole counsel of God. There are things he wants to say to you, and you're neglecting because it's just a little difficult, or inconvenient, or messy. Here in this passage, we're talking about where God is taking history, that God is doing a new thing, that he's bringing a new covenant. He's bringing a Savior who is indeed a Jew. And that is revealed in God's word. And the Samaritans have cut it out. And he is a descendant of Abraham who will bless all nations. He is that seed, and he's going to bless all nations, including the Samaritans themselves. And so he says to her, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true believers, true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are, are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah, that is called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I love that passage. True worship leads to the Savior who makes God known. If you are looking for a passage where you're going, where does Jesus say that he's the Messiah? Man, this is it. If it's not underlined in your Bible, it should be. Because Jesus is making himself known very plainly more so than he does to anybody. And who does he reveal it to? This woman of ill repute, this stranger, this woman on the other side of the tracks. He's making his true identity known to her because he is looking to make a worshiper of her. Why? Because she knows her need. For all of her poor choices, and she's been looking for love in all the wrong places, 
She knows it. This is why she's come at the, in the middle of the day, because she doesn't want to experience the shame that might come in interacting with the other women. Right now, the Messiah has come to her and reached out to her that she might become a true worshiper. This is good news for her. Because she goes, I thought I was broken. I thought I was used goods. And yet, something is happening here. I don't think she's realizing all of it. I mean, it's, it's taking place in, in real time. And if you think you comprehend who Jesus is when the first time you put your faith in him, you have much to learn, as do I. But let me say, this is not such good news for people who are convinced of their own goodness. This is not such good news for people who say, you know what, I, I'm pretty sure I have a good handle on the law. I'm pretty sure that I'm pleasing God. And yet, if you dig a little deeper and start scratching at the surface as to what's going on inside of the heart, you might find humility. More than likely, you'll find, you'll find someone who's offended. You know, and the same is true today if you share the gospel with somebody and you tell them, you know what? God loves you, but you have fallen short of his glory. You are a sinner. What? Who, who are you to tell me I'm a sinner? What do you, I am a good person. I'm sure I'm suiting at least 500. I mean, I try and love my neighbor. I try and pe- treat people with fairness and kindness. I believe in God even. I go to church. I'm involved in the community. But again, what the sad thing about this is the comparison horizon is horizontal. We're comparing ourselves with each other. And yeah, you might be doing better than the next guy. But I'm going to tell you, even then, there's probably somebody who's doing it better. But here's the thing. The comparison, this is a bad, this is a bad reading. Because the comparison is vertical with a holy God. Who's Standard is perfection. And you bring that to them and they go, that is ridiculous. That is unrealistic. I mean, who can meet that standard? And you go, you're right. For you and me, that is unrealistic. That standard is ridiculous. But this is why Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Messiah has come to bridge that gap. And that He has come to live the life you and I can't. And he's going to pay a price that we can't. And rise from the dead to conquer a foe that we can't. But here's the thing. You cannot come to worship the Father unless you come through the Son. There's an old hymn that says, Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he has done. You can't be redeemed without the Redeemer. Jesus is the one who says the words that we sang earlier. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So it's not good news for someone who's trying to be on the self-salvation program or self-justification program. It's not good news for the person that wants options either. 
who's looking for, you know, many different ways. Because Jesus making this comment, that just seems exclusive. That seems arrogant. By today's standards, maybe it is. But I think it's a failure to see the reality. It's a failure to see the reality, once again, that the arrogance is really on our part. Because, again, we insist on having God our way. God is not Burger King. We insist on Him bridging the gap or receiving us according to our standards. Rather than humbling ourselves and realizing this is a gracious offer to rescue us, that we might be reconciled, that we might be saved forever. And we exchange a rebellious life for his perfect life of obedience. We exchange our spiritual poverty for his priceless sacrifice on the cross. And we exchange our feeble flesh for his resurrection power that comes to dwell within us by his Holy Spirit. You can't really worship the Father unless you have the Son. For this unlikely worshiper, (laughs) again, it's good news for her. And she becomes an unlikely but effective evangelist. She goes back to town and says, come see a man who told me everything I did. Could he be the Christ? Could he be the Messiah? You see, Jesus is seeking worshipers. And so the Samaritans do come out of the, out of the village. They listen to her. And Jesus, they, after talking with Jesus, they invite him to stay two more days. To stay on the other side of the tracks for two more days and bring the good news, bring the gospel to create more worshipers that a harvest for the kingdom might take place. And at the end they say, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and know that this man really is the Savior of the world. It's amazing to me that these Samaritans, these half-breeds, these heretics, if you will, are the ones who are early responders to the gospel, early responders to the Lord. And that's why we sing Christ-centered songs, songs about the Savior. You know what we're doing when we do that? We're actually kind of evangelizing each other because we're reminding each other. We're reminding each other that there is no redemption without the Son. But we're also reminding we have a great Savior who has spent himself expensively. And that's one of the reasons why it's our custom, is, you know, it's what Jesus commanded, but to take the Lord's Supper, to remember his priceless sacrifice for us. And viscerally taste it and imbibe it. We don't believe those things become the body and blood of Christ, but it is a strong, visceral reminder. That's what's going on. 
And also to remind ourselves that there's still a future. That he's coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to make all things new. And make all things right. And all the brokenness that we experience right now, that's going to change. And we can wait. We can hold on to him because that is a done deal. It is sealed. It's just a matter of time. And to know that, know that deep down within us. On the, on the meantime, while we are waiting, to know we've got a world who desperately needs this news. People who desperately need to come to faith. And they might be on the other side of the tracks. Is there someone God is calling you to go to the other side of the tracks to and take this good news to them? Get rid of all the earthly offense or whatever else you think is going on and think about how the Father has sent His Son to find worshipers. And let us worship our God in spirit and in truth. The Savior who makes the Father known that people might come to the conclusion this man really is the Savior of the world. We worship God for who He is and we come to Him through the Savior who makes the Father known. I'm going to pray and then invite the worship team to come on up and close us in prayer. Lord, this is a, a wonderful passage, but it's, it's challenging. Because if we're honest, we want to stay on our side of the tracks. If we're honest, um, sometimes we like to feel good about ourselves rather than remember that we are just as broken as this woman was. And yet you are seeking worshipers to worship you in spirit and in truth. Forgive us, Father, when we ascribe to you things we want you to be rather than who you are. And forgive us, Lord Jesus, when we don't take you into account. That God had to put on flesh to dwell among us to bridge that gap. And we're grateful that you did, Lord Jesus. God, you are the God who revealed himself, not the God that we have made. And we, your people, want to be faithful to worship you in spirit and in truth today and until you come. So, Lord Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we respond in worship?